0: of you who have been uh, with us for a wee while will know that this year we've been working through the book of First Peter, and um, First uh, Peter is just such a good guy, um, he's, he's pictured as, as being quite a big guy, so for the men, I mean I've always sort of thought of Peter as likely blindside flanker, he'd be a guy who would just, he would have your back, you know, he, just, he strikes me as awesome, for the ladies, Peter was a fisherman. What is there not to love about this man? I mean, seriously. He's just, the the thing though that that I really love him is you have to say it is just a God-given gift to have that one person in your group who says the utterly stupid thing right before you're about to and saves you from that pain. And Peter was spiritually gifted in this regard. Time and time again, we, re- we just hear him just opening up his mouth and just, you know, exchanging one foot for the other. And he, he doesn't say things when he's meant to, and other times he just blurts things out. And, and the Bible actually says he said that because he just didn't know what to say. I mean, it's just, it's what you feel his embarrassment. And he was just such an ordinary guy, he, he's, a, he's an unschooled man. And he just makes so many mistakes. And even though he's one of the closest followers of Jesus, he's one of the guys who gets singled out as lacking faith. He's just an example of, all, of almost what not to do. And then we read about probably his most famous blunder where the night that Jesus is arrested, Peter stands up and he kind of beats his chest and he says, Yeah, he says, you know, Jesus, I'll follow you. Even if I have to die for you, I'll follow you. And then that very night, three times, he denies Jesus, and he just ends up in tears. But after Jesus rises from the dead, who does Jesus single out and pull aside and choose to lead the most incredible organization in human history? It's this guy, Peter. And Peter finds from this belief that Jesus has in him, this incredible courage, and we read some amazing things about Peter. He's the guy who stands up then on the day of Pentecost and, and shares. And he goes on and he's arrested. And he's, he's whipped. And, and not just a little ooh, ooh, ooh. I mean, it's 39 lashes. They just tear this guy's back open. He's thrown in prison. But he speaks with such courage that his his opponents, his persecutors, say this. They say, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And even after that, when they were demanded not to to speak in the name of Jesus, we read that they stood up anyway. And we read that day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, Peter and the people around him never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And what encourages me so much by that is that no offense to you guys, but you are pretty ordinary people. And I'm a pretty ordinary guy. And I would say that in any church in New Zealand or anywhere in the world, because that's just the nature of humans. We are ordinary. But I look at someone like Peter, this ordinary guy who stands up and does such extraordinary things. And I'm thinking to myself, that is awesome. I want to learn from that man and particularly Peter who suffered and who was opposed and who was whipped and who was demanded to keep quiet and yet he finds the courage to go and do this and i'm saying to myself what can i learn from that guy and today's passage is just such a cool one for that in in terms of someone who was so ordinary and yet who found the courage and the ability to do such extraordinary things. And so there's some really good lessons. So I'd love, you if, if, love it if you can, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read together from verse 13 and see what Peter says uh, about this. So 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start reading from verse 13. He says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart. Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There's a whole lot of things I love about this passage. And the first one is that Peter quite clearly lives in the real world. I mean, he he's not just an Eeyore like the mopey donkey out of winnie the pooh about the world and everything's so bad and i'm a christian and everyone just hates me and i can't get anything right and the, the whole world is out to persecute me and get me he's not like that at all he, he says who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good and that is the real world in most of our situations most of our families our workplaces the places where we study if we care about the people who are around us and we encourage them and we work hard and and we take an interest in them and we love them and their families they happen to be made in the image of a God who appreciates goodness. And so they will appreciate it when we live like that. That's just the general principle. Not everyone is out to get us. And so if we find ourselves with a growing list of enemies, can I suggest that the first conclusion for us to jump to is not that we are suffering religious persecution. It may well be that we are just working with a prickly character who doesn't smile as much as what we do. We're just working next to someone who is not as warm as they could be without coffee in their bloodstream. I mean our senior pastor, I have it on good authority, you know, is is not the best until he's got some caffeine in his system. And I, I can vouch for him he's a really nice guy after about nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and he's not here today. So hopefully he doesn't watch this as well. But th- that's the reality. You know, some people, they're, they're just not as warm as us. And so, it's, and so when they don't treat us, perhaps, and smile and hug us as much as what... Well, it's not necessarily religious persecution. Sometimes we have to look at ourselves and say, if people are, are, are getting their backs up, are we just tired and grumpy ourselves? Are we not showing, reflecting the grace that we should be? Showing the patience that we should be, the care... Is it something to do with us and not just, you know, and, and that we're labeling religious persecution? That shouldn't be the first conclusion that we jump to because, in the real world, if we're keen to do good to others, the chances are we will be accepted. But Peter is not so naive to think that everyone will always love us because of that. And in the real world, there are also situations where people will not like us, sometimes purely because we are Christians. One of the hardest parts about putting this message together that I've found is trying to take the context that Peter was writing to. When he writes to Christians dispersed in his day who were under a Roman emperor who would go on to burn them just for the fact that they were Christians, trying to take that, con- that context of, of opposition and persecution and bring it into sort of our day in New Zealand when our greatest concern is that someone would burn our stake rather than burn us at the stake. I mean, we live in a, a largely tolerant country, and as a rule, we don't suffer anything like this. But I would put a lot of money on the fact that there are people in this group who right now are feeling, either in their marriage or their family or their workplace or the place where they study, that they are ostracized or they are looked down upon. They are marginalized, even perhaps feel persecuted purely because they are the religious one. They're thought of as, as a bit loopy. They're looked down upon because of the beliefs that they hold. That is also the real world. And that's at the soft end of the spectrum. There, there is a, a tip of the spear as well. There is a real militancy. And some of you who perhaps have an interest in, in sort of the evidence for the faith, who, who sort of read some of this, you'll, you'll be familiar with some of the people like a guy called Christopher Hitchens. Who says this, I think religion should be treated with ridicule, hatred and contempt and I claim that right. Sam Harris, another writer, says the true horror of religion, he, he said it allows perfectly decent and sane people to believe by the billions what only lunatics could believe on their own. The ringmaster of the, the modern atheist, Richard Dawkins, says, I'm utterly fed up with the respect we have been brainwashed into bestowing upon religion. And this is this is in our universities. This is the stuff that's on Facebook pages of, of people that we have contact with. So, and not just in the universities where they're trying to proselytize with good reason, that's what you would do if, if you believe this, but even out in the popular sphere, so in the novels of the world. One of my favorite authors, Dan Brown has a clear agenda. Great author, very poor historian, theologian. He says things like this. His latest book, Origin. He says, historically, the most dangerous men on earth were men of God, especially when their gods, small g, became threatened. In his most famous book, The Da Vinci Code, he says, every faith in the world is based on fabrication. That is the definition of faith. Faith acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. And so we do live in a world where there is opposition to what we believe. And there are a lot of people out there who think we're lunatics. They think we're stupid. And they look down on us. And there are people in this room who will understand what I'm meaning. If you don't feel that this is you today, it is likely to happen. And there are those of you who understand exactly what I'm saying. And so what is Peter's encouragement and his message? As a guy who suffered far more than we ever will, what is his message to followers of Jesus? To be able to stand up even when you suffer, even when you are opposed like that. He starts off and he says in verse 14, recognizing the reality of this, he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And I think what he means by that is that he, he's harking back to some words of Jesus who said in the in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus clearly says if you suffer today because of what you're doing for me because you're standing up for me you're blessed. There are rewards waiting for you. That's You, you should be happy about that. That's not a bad thing. You're counted as being mine. But how do we translate that into an encouragement now when i'm suffering now perhaps for peter's readers when they were facing the tip of a spear how do they translate that into the present peter says don't fear what they fear don't be frightened but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. This is the encouragement that he's giving to them. And what's he meaning by this? It's really interesting because what he's actually doing is he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote in in about about 700 BC, years and years earlier. And the context that Isaiah the prophet was talking to, that Peter is now quoting, was in a day when when God's people were under physical threat from the nations around them. And one of those nations was the nation of Assyria, who were just renowned for their brutality and the horror of of what they would inflict on people. And not just what they physically did, but their psychological warfare. So even before Assyria, the Assyrian army came over the horizon into your area, they would be throwing heads out ahead of them. There would be stories of how they would pin people to the ground and skin them alive. And so before you even saw the army, there was this this tsunami of fear that got to Jerusalem. And God's people were scared. And Isaiah the prophet stands up and he says this. He says, don't fear God what they fear. Those nations around you, don't fear what they fear. Don't dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. You are to revere. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. I want you to make a comparison. I want you to just think about the nations around you and the Assyrians who are so frightening. But I want you to put them next to me And by comparison, I am so much bigger. And you know what? You should fear me so much more. But I'm on your side. And as a proud uh, child of God, as a proud Jew, Peter would know what the result was. When Jerusalem had been besieged by the Assyrian army and they are just fearing for their lives and they cry out to their God, Yahweh. And Yahweh comes and in one night He wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers so that they just pack up their siege ramps and they go back to Assyria. And Isaiah had made the promise. Man, you compare Yahweh to those around you and don't fear them. Fear me. And that's exactly the thing that Peter then says when he's saying to the the Christians of his day, who were also under physical threat as well as mental and and the persecution they suffered, he quotes Isaiah. And he says, don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart. Revere, some of your translations will say, Christ as Lord. How's that supposed to help us? Tell you how. How? really good quote from a message I heard earlier this year, a pastor called Timon Bengston. He said this, he said, when we understand the me in Jesus' command to follow me, the following gets so much easier. When we understand who we are being called to follow, the following is so much easier. And what I'm meaning here is that is that we have this picture of Jesus, particularly in in the modern Western church, where we emphasize the loving Jesus, the gracious Jesus, the compassionate Jesus, who, who put kids on his knee and he blessed them. And all of that is true, and all of that is beautiful, and we love him for that. But we have lost some of the majesty of the real Jesus. We have watered him down. And when we look at... The, the Gospels, and we take our, our rose-tinted, uh, sort of watering, toning down Jesus' glasses off, we see that, that if we go through just the Gospel of Mark, which we do a lot when we go through the, the Explore course, the shortest of the Gospels, and when you read through that, the one word that you will not find is the word impressed. People were not impressed by Jesus. Jesus. The word you will find over and over and over is the word amazed. People who had heard teachers all their lives had seen pretty incredible things. When they saw Jesus, they were amazed. And when we come across miracles that Jesus did, people weren't impressed. Think about the day when Jesus is out in a boat and most of his disciples are are experienced fishermen and they come across a storm that they think is going to cost them their lives. And they who have lived out on the water are fearing death. And then Jesus just wakes up. He's so relaxed. He wakes up and he calms the storm just with words. And what do we read? How did did his disciples respond to that? They were what? And asked each other, who is this? They were merry. They were happy. They were impressed. No. They were terrified. Because they're saying to themselves, who is this guy who's sitting in the boat with us? Who does that? Who talks to nature and calms a storm with a few words that was going to t- Who is this? They were terrified. And we, when we start to, to, to recapture the real Jesus who terrified people, the real Jesus whose power was just off the charts. Then you start to understand why Peter says, you know, when you are backed into a corner and when you're feeling marginalized, and when you're feeling persecuted, when you're at the, the tip of a spear, the watered-down Jesus, the, the skinny little guy who's just the, the modern version, is not gonna cut it. And we've reduced Jesus down so often to, to this guy who's he's just like a pikelet baking, smiley new entrant teacher who's about as powerful in the modern world as your dad on the dance floor and he is not going to cut it when you are feeling persecuted when you are feeling marginalized and you're asking yourself do I really want to entrust myself to this guy is it worth it to to be known as a follower of this guy you don't want a pikelet baking your entrance teacher as your saviour you want the real Jesus and when the me and follow me Becomes really clear to you, and when you just start to regain the picture of the Jesus that terrified his followers, as well as loving them and showing them more compassion than anyone else had ever shown, when you start to capture the real Jesus, you would be amazed by that comparison, whether it's an Assyrian army whether it's your workmates who pick on you, whoever it is, you compare them to the real Jesus, who Peter says, in your hearts, in the core of who you are, revere him, you will be amazed at the confidence you find and how much fear you are prepared to overcome when you understand the one you are really following. That's why Peter says, in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord. It's what he he does when he quotes Isaiah, telling the people of his day, you know what, you can stand up even under suffering. And he goes on after he's done that because as, as someone who had done this, he knows, he had an expectation that when we do that, people are going to wonder why. Why do you live like that even when you perhaps suffer like that? And so he says, going on in verse 15, always in response to that, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer. Oh, Sorry, I missed some fantastic quotes. The word that he uses when he says, uh, be prepared to give an answer, the word answer answer there is is apologia, from which we get our modern word, apology. And he's not asking us to say, I'm I'm really sorry about being a Christian. It's a word that also gives rise to the the science we call apologetics, which means to give a, a reasoned, formal defense of something that you believe. And so we read when the Apostle Paul, well-known um, apologist, defender of the faith, he's put on trial, and he's standing before King Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense, and he uses the word apologia, my defense, my, re, my, my reason my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And this is one of the things that I just love so much about Christianity, is that I think more than any other worldview, when we invite you into this room, we don't expect you to leave your brains out in the car park. We expect you to bring your intellect in here. And we expect you to be... Not just allowed, but we would encourage you to ask questions and wrestle with the truths and the concepts and the ideas that we throw around. Because as creatures made in the image of God, you have been given intelligence. And we respect and love you by respecting that intelligence. We expect you to be able to reason. Which is why when people come along to the Explore course, when we, when we invite them to, and, and talk to them about Jesus, before we even pick up the Bible, we answer a couple of questions. The first one is, can a thinking person really believe in God? And then, can, I, can we really trust God? what the Bible says about Jesus even before we open up the Bible. And this is a way of loving people because the people in the world around us, in our our families, our workplaces, our, our schools, our universities, they have good questions. But we also have good answers. We have good reasons. We have good apologia for the questions that they have. And it's a really good thing for us to be able to to share our testimony. At a minimum, we should be able to answer the question, well, why is it that you follow Jesus? We should be able to give an answer for that. And your personal story, your personal testimony is a, a powerful thing to use in that regard. But as we go on and as we grow and as we mature in our faith, we should also be equipping ourselves to be able to answer more questions that people have for us. There are some really good tools around uh, for us to be able to do that. I just want to briefly share some of them. The first one is just the the plethora of of books around. There are so many good books that that share the answers to the questions that people have, the questions that, that we have, and that give evidence, really good, solid evidence for the existence of God, for the claims of Jesus Christ, for the the problem of pain, all of these things that people do wrestle with. And as you go out today, if if you're interested, there are a few of these books out on the back table in in the foyer area, and they're free. Just grab them, take them away, read them, give them away, get them out there. That's what we'd love to happen. There is also an excellent resource that anyone, any members of, of Botany Life, Uh, Have access to most of you will hopefully be familiar with a website called Right Now Media, um, and we have access to that. And and on the the Right Now Media website, there is an excellent Apologetic section, which just, you can stream brilliant messages from excellent communicators on the, the, the questions and the issues that, that are really scratching where people are, are, are itching. evidence for God, the, the, dealing with the claims, the exclusivity, why can we say that Jesus is the only way to God, why do people suffer the way that they do, why is the world such a mess if there's such an, a good all power, all of these kind of questions dealt with so brilliantly on that site. If, because you can't download stuff straight off that site, if you want something to perhaps be able to listen to in the car or, or plug into, into your earphones when you're out for a walk or a run, there are just so many brilliant podcasts, messages you can download off the internet by by excellent communicators that help school you and how to reach your friends, how to respond to the questions, the good, honest, sincere questions that they have. If you're not sure of the authors, perhaps the communicators, please feel free to e- email us and we would be happy to make recommendations. Explore at botanylife.org.nz Explore at botanylife.org It might not be Botany Life for that much longer, we'll update it, but email us, we would love to tell you who to listen to, who to read. But it's, it's incumbent on us to do that because this is part of loving the people around us. And what you'll find is that the more equipped you are, the more answers that you have, the more excited and confident you will be to stand up and share the truth that you know with others, to put stones in people's shoes, to sow seeds in conversations, and then then just be part of conversations and flesh out what you believe as people are ready to take that. You will grow in confidence. One of the risks, though, is that as we do that, as we grow in confidence and we know we have the answers and we know how to communicate the lack of understanding in other people, clearly we run the risk of, of overusing that. And the greatest risk is that we become intellectual bullies. And that's exactly what Peter sees. And so he says after his challenge for us to give an answer, He says straight away, again in verse 15, but do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, Not long after I became a Christian, I had been converted from atheism. I grew up, I never set foot in a Sunday school classroom, just never believed in God, became a Christian, and I just discovered apologetics and all of this evidence and the ability to to give people reasons and I just loved it and then I was walking through one of the main streets of Nelson one night and I was approached by a a lovely gentle elderly lady who happened to be a Jehovah's Witness and I had heard about the Jehovah's Witnesses and that some of their beliefs were a long way from from historical biblical Christianity and so I took it upon myself to explain how wrong she was. And when she gave me a verse, I would shoot back and give her another verse to show her that she was wrong. And when she, she sort of said, no, that's not what the Bible says, I whipped out my little New Testament that I had at the ready, and I showed her where she was wrong. And when she said that mine was spurious, and I reminded her that, you know, the authors of the, her Bible, you know, that they, were, they were wrong. And, everyone, and we went backwards and forwards, and after about 15 minutes... I walked away frustrated because I hadn't converted her and this poor old lady walked away and I can still see she had beads of sweat on her forehead and I spoke to my dad the the part of that interaction that I remember the most is that I went home and told my dad what had happened and his comment to me was wow I bet she'll never want to talk to you again And right to this day, I just feel the punch in my stomach from those words. Because if we had have scored the discussion, I would have won. But I lost her. I won the argument, and I lost the person. And as I walked away, I don't think heaven was rejoicing. I think the enemy was probably smiling. And I had taken her further from the real Jesus than I think she had been 15 minutes beforehand. I didn't treat her with gentleness and respect. And that's exactly what we are called to do. That's part of loving people with the truth. Peter also says, as well as doing it with gentleness and respect, we're to do it with a clear conscience. Because people have pretty finely tuned meters in regard to hypocrisy. And if our lives don't match up with the message that we're sharing, about this beautiful, compassionate, truth-telling, incredible person who just loved and was faithful and honest and had the highest integrity of any human being, if our lives are not at least you know, loosely matching up with the message, people are just going to see straight through us. And so Peter says in verse 16, keep that clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And what he's saying is if you suffer because you've been a jerk or you've been a hypocrite, you're not being persecuted. You're just getting exactly what you deserve. But if you stand up with a clear conscience and gently, respectfully do the right thing, and give good answers then you are blessed if you are like me i just i read a passage like this and i'm so encouraged and i'm so challenged but i look back on so many situations with regret like i'm sure peter did himself things that he should have said that he didn't things that he times when he he you know said the wrong thing or went too far or just just blew it And one of the things I've read this week that I've just found so encouraging is just a reminder that in the vast majority of those situations, they are recoverable. Those relationships that we have damaged can be restored. Those discussions where we blew it, they can be redeemed. It's very rare for that not to happen. The only times are probably a deathbed conversation or perhaps a one-off conversation on a plane but they are the the vast exceptions most of the times. When we've blown it, we can come back and recover those. really neat example I read this week by one of uh, a guy I just love, a guy called Doug Pollock. He's an evangelist with Athletes in Action and and just loves telling people, obviously, about the Lord. And he uh, was building a house, him and his wife, and he decided to take some time off and to strap on an apron and get in there amongst the builders so that he could interact with them. Wanted to be part of, of the team, obviously had a message he would love to share. But what he noticed is that even though he was trying to be part of the group, he felt this kind of wall. And one of the things he noticed is that every time a new person came onto the building site, there would be this little conversation, this little sermon they would receive off to the side. Don't swear and don't tell dirty stories because he's, he's a religious guy. And Doug Pollock wasn't so much feeling marginalized by that as he felt that there was a barrier. He felt that he couldn't get to their hearts, that he was put off to the side. When he wanted to be connected, he has a message to share. And then one day, despite the sermon about no bad words, someone drops the C word, Church. And all of a sudden, there is this wave of just church-bashing stories. And, you know, people, there's just so much negativity. And, and he, he's just so tempted to just launch in there and just deliver this blistering sermon on the virtues of the church and all that's done well. And, and he thinks, no. And he holds back so wisely, and he just listens. And then when he feels it's safe to, to perhaps contribute... He says, "Guys, I'm just wondering. Some of his favourite words—they're just great words to gently enter a conversation. I'm just wondering, what is it? What have you actually experienced about church that's made you feel the way that you do? Not trying to foster—he's not trying to foster church bashing. He's trying to create a safe environment for them to be honest. And they did, and they shared, and they grew in that safety. And then towards the end of the conversation." the biggest guy on the work side, a guy called Don, asks a question, and all of a sudden his mates start laughing at him, and they say, Don, do you want to get saved too? And Don turns around and he says, you shut up. He says, you know, you'll be in hell with me one day. And all of, all of a sudden the conversation just dies. And Doug Pollock, he says, I travel the world teaching people how to share their faith, and I was just, I didn't know what to say. And he said, I just just walked away and I felt like I'd missed the goal in the biggest game of the year. And he just thought he'd totally blown it. But he's the guy who wrote this week, you know what, you can recover those situations. So having thought he had just completely dropped the ball, a month later, still on the building side, he sits down at lunchtime next to Big Don and he says those safe words again. He says, hey, Don, I'm just wondering. I'm really intrigued by something you said a wee while back. And now Don's intrigued. He says, yeah, what what was that? And he says, well, you know, in my job, I just travel all over the place, and I meet heaps of people who wrongly are really confident they're going to heaven, but I, I don't really meet that many people who are so confident of going to hell like you seem to be. Would you... Just, you, would you, why is that? And Don felt safe to share, and he just gave Doug Pollock this big list of what he saw as unforgivable sins that he had committed when he'd been a member of a gang. And Doug Pollock listened, and then he said, he said, man, you sound like a man condemned. You sound like a man who has no hope. And uh, Big Don nods. And so Doug Pollock says, Would you mind if I just, could I tell you what God has done to take that weight off your shoulders so that you wouldn't have that death sentence? And Don feels safe. He says, yeah, tell me. And so Doug Pollock shares that Jesus died on the cross, took on himself the punishment we deserve so that we can be accepted. We don't have to carry the guilt anymore. And Don doesn't fall on his knees and repent, But he says, well, I I guess perhaps there could be hope for guys like me. And at the date of writing, Doug Pollock says, as far as he knew, Don was not a Christian. But Don was a heck of a lot closer than what he'd been before he had the discussions with Doug Pollock. Just because a relatively ordinary guy had the courage to get in amongst of swearing, church-bashing builders... Gently, respectfully give answers and back it up as best he could with a life that kind of mirrored Christ. And that's exactly what Peter is calling us to do. If I can boil down today's passage just into one big idea. Even in suffering, even when you might be marginalized, persecuted, not invited, even in suffering, Christ-centered lives and a readiness to answer, let ordinary people share an extraordinary hope. And that is Peter's challenge to us today. Peter, an ordinary man, to quite frankly an ordinary church, getting talked to by a very ordinary guy. If we are prepared to remind ourselves and follow the real Jesus and all of his splendor and power and scary beauty and might. And we're prepared to, to have answers to people who give us good questions and we back that up as we do that with gentleness and respect, with clear consciences. We ordinary people can share the most extraordinary hope that the world can ever hear. Because quite frankly, there is nothing bigger and there is no better news. That is the call and that is the privilege that Peter gives us today, that he gave to the people of his day and that we have today as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just firstly uh, want to pray. Would you open up our eyes and never, ever let us forget who it is that we're following, that when you call us to follow, you help us to remember and understand and appreciate who you actually are, that we would know that you, when you stand in our corner, are just mind-blowingly awesome, that you are compassionate beyond measure, but you are powerful beyond any ability to take in, and that you can use just plain, ordinary people like us to reach a lost world with the most extraordinary hope that any of them can ever hear. We can't do this alone, and we don't want to do that alone. We just so desperately want to be used by you. So would you please do that? Would you help us to be people who entrust ourselves fully to you, trust you to use us and find courage because of that, to share you with them, to share the greatest hope that they can ever hear? Please use us for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.